You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. It's our great honor this week to host the very famous Shmuley Boteach. And uh, Shmuley Boteach has been dubbed by the media as America's rabbi. His books are all acclaimed and very, very powerful and influential. Not only that, he uh, was the founder of the L'chaim Society in Oxford. He also is an incredible advocate for Israel, uh, always something powerful and convincing to say. And, uh, okay, I'll leave it at that. Um, no need to <laughs> say more nice things because our friendship is so special. Um Hanoch, it's uh, an honor to be on your podcast. I have been a fan of your work for decades uh, since I was a teenager. Read so many of your books, and it was such a joy for me when we came to know each other and became friends. And we've become family friends. You attended our son's bar mitzvah in Yerushalayim, and now here you are at our home. Not to mention I taught your daughter. That's right, you taught my daughter. That was Mushki, right? Right. You taught Mushki. Um, But you are the world's greatest Jewish storyteller. But even Mm. that doesn't really sum up everything you are because you're such a great scholar and you're an exemplary human being. You're everything that a Jewish personality ought to be. I don't want to talk so, about myself, uh, but don't forget so we met also. Don't, for, don't forget that we also had a tour together in Yad Vashem. We did have a tour together in Yad Vashem. That was with... Uh, Dr. Oz. With Dr. Oz. That's amazing, yes. Wow. We've done a lot together. Mm-hmm. And then I had this event with Dr. Oz just the other night. Right. Uh, about grief on my father's yard site. Correct. Uh, it was very moving because, you know, he's a big celebrity and Brett Stevens of the New York Times was there and everybody was speaking very, very personally about their experiences and their pain um, in losing a parent. So uh, that was uh, an unforgettable trip with Dr. Oz because beyond being the world's most famous doctor, he is also arguably the world's most famous uh, Muslim personality who's not a head of state. And he's such a great friend of the Jewish people in Israel um, and he's, he's such a decent and moral man, and you were able to show him the devastation of the Holocaust. And, and uh, yeah, that was unforgettable. I, I'm going to give you one. I really will get on to our subject, but before that I'll tell you a story about grief and uh, something which is significant to me. I was running uh, one of my earliest races, and as I was getting to the starting line, I was next to a colleague of mine. who just We happened to be at the starting line at the same time. He is very muscular, he looks like an athlete, smells like an athlete. He's a... Uh, Sounds like me. Yeah, one of the same, a uh, little taller. And he said to me the following, that Mr. Marathon, I don't know his name, Philegamy or something, whatever, the, the fellow who ran from Sparta to yep. to Marathon. Right. He told me that he, when he got to Marathon, he dropped dead. And really? I said to him, I don't think this is the most opportune time to tell me this. He said to me, on the contrary, if you run a race and you have strength to run further at the end, you did not run it correctly. And that gave me such a kick. I ran so fast, I, I beat my students. I couldn't get my head through the door for a couple of days. But what's, what I'm trying to share about my, uh, my father was a very robust man. In the last three months of his life, I had to breathe for him, change him, feed him. Wow. And I had my mind the whole time, I had to stand to the race. I have to use all my energy now. And that's usually a mourner is always pained by the fact you could have done more. I felt I gave it my all. How old was your father when he passed away? Uh, 91. 
Well, so my father was 87. He died a year ago. It's been a very tough year for me. Uh, that's why uh, we just had the news of the birth of a, n a new granddaughter, thank God. And it, we're just over the moon. We're mm -hmm. so overjoyed because uh, the culmination of this very painful year is the affirmation of life. And that's the circle of life. But thank God, uh, you know, more grandchildren. And my, this would my, my father's great-grandchild. But it's been a very tough year, and I'm, I finished Kaddish, and I just finished the first yard site, and uh, so for the first time in a year, I'm no longer a mourner. I, I ended my mourning period <laughs> and went right into the mourning of Omer. It was like, God, I, and then as soon as that finished with Shavuos, then I went immediately into saying Yisker for Shavuos. <laughs> so grief is an important part of Judaism, but ultimately we have to choose life. Okay. Uh as Miriam Peretz says all the time, I'm going to go on to our subject, which is we had three consecutive series on Teller from Jerusalem about Chajamin al-Husseini, uh, my candidate for one of the ten worst people in the history of history. And uh, I see this replaying in history now in our own contemporaneous times where uh, the idea to rile up people saying lies about Al-Aqsa and we're taking over and there's not a, a, a stitch of truth to it. Uh, if you could just comment about... Uh, how they're able to manipulate the media, and what we have to do to counter that. Look, all you have to do uh, to sum up the Mufti of Jerusalem, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajamin al-Husseini, was to say that he was a Nazi. Uh, here you had a, uh, an Arab leader, um, a Semite, who made common cause with Hitler, and who planned the annihilation and extermination of the Jewish people in the Middle East. Now just imagine what that takes. Hitler, Yamach Shemo, who is number one on that list, the most evil monster that ever lived. In fact, I don't like calling him a monster because it removes from him the Correct. capacity for free choice. He was a right. human being who chose to erase the image of God from his countenance, became the most vile fiend that ever lived. But Hitler was a, a white supremacist. And when we speak about white supremacists, the growth of white supremacists, you know, the Nazi movement was the ultimate statement of of white supremacy that an Aryan master race would dominate the world and they would enslave some of the uh, lower races like the Slavs but they would exterminate uh, the truly reprehensible races like the Jews but all Semites were suspect to Hitler and here Hajamin al-Husseini makes common cause with Hitler and is granted asylum by the Nazis after opposing the British during the war, um, someone who really hates him. Of course, Hitler and, and the Nazis would have hated a man like that. So what was their collaboration? Their collaboration was they both wanted to annihilate the Jews. Hitler had the capacity to do so, and he killed one out of every three Jews on planet Earth. Thank God, Haj Amin al-Husseini never got the capacity to do so. Because he would have implemented it. And he, he wanted, made every effort that he could. And he wanted Hitler to, he, he encouraged Hitler to bring the same remedy to, quote, you know, Palestine's Jews as Hitler was bringing to Europe's Jews. Uh, even further, not just to Palestine, to the Middle East. In Iraq, I mean, he, he was very industrious in his thoughts about what to do. And he wanted to mimic, he thought it was a very successful system. He had a personal tour of the concentration camps. And he wanted to import that system Right into the Middle to East. The Middle East. And you have to blame the British for having elevated him to become Grand Mufti because they thought that, uh, that he might be uh, conciliatory, uh, but they chose a radical. 
and even and you know th- th- it wasn't as if he deserved to be grand mufti it wasn't he, like he was a great scholar that he was not chosen based on any kind of merit he came from uh an important Arab family, and they just thought that by giving him this position, they would have someone with whom they could negotiate. But it was the British who gave him this position. And many believe, and I believe, that the Middle East suffers the repercussions of that elevation till this very day, because he radicalized the Arabs. I remember when Ariel Sharon spoke for my organization, the Oxford University Lechaim Society, in 1991, in front of you know maybe a thousand students at the Oxford Union, and I remember that a Palestinian woman raised her hand and asked a very tough question. And I remember he kept his cool. Ariel Sharon at the at the time, he was Israel's housing minister, and Sharon said to her, "I am a farmer. Yes, I'm also a soldier, and I'm a government minister, but primarily I'm a farmer." And he said, "I remember when Arabs and Jews farmed and worked the land together. I remember when we were brothers in cultivating." Um, the swampland and making it into something that would be agriculturally industrious and productive. So much of that was undone by people like Hajamin al-Husseini with him being at the forefront. That's a very good point. I didn't think about that, that he was so instrumental in sparking this radicalism. Uh, I just thought of his own personal campaign to try and eliminate Jews and make sure that they would never come to Israel and those that in Israel itself would actually be exterminated. Well, look at the look at the battle between Israel and Hamas. On the one hand, you have the United Arab Emirates and uh, Dubai and uh, Bahrain and uh, Morocco and Sudan making peace with Israel. On the other, and Oman. On the other, you have Hamas waging a war of annihilation, a, war, a genocidal war against Israel, or at least attempting to. It's part of their genocidal charter. It shows you. In, a, in the same region in the Middle East, the absolutely incredibly different responses to the Jewish state from the Arabs today. One whole region, the Gulf states, wealthy, successful, prosperous, they want to move ahead in the world, they want to use Israeli technology, they want to use Israeli know-how, they're making peace, and they're very proud of Israel. Uh, oh, sorry, and they're, they're very proud of the fact that they made peace. And I say proud because I was on the White House lawn when the when the when the Abraham Accords were actually signed, and and I saw um, the Foreign Minister of Bahrain, the Foreign Minister of the United Arab Emirates, um, with President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, and there was clearly a sense of pride that this historic agreement had been achieved. A few months later, we have Hamas firing rockets to annihilate the Jews. I say this because it shows you, it shows you what happens based on different kinds of leadership. The leadership of the Arab Gulf states is seeking to make peace. The leadership of Hamas is seeking to annihilate the Jews. Haj Amin al of course... Own, even at their own expense. In 1993, there was an earthquake in Iran. Over 30,000 were killed in that earthquake. And Iran said they were willing to accept help from anywhere in the world except from Israel. Now, ironically, Israel has expertise in how to get people out of wedged buildings because of Iranian explosions, but they didn't want the Iranians to see that Israelis were coming and saving Iranian lives, lest they be softer in their hatred towards the Jews and of Israelis. Well, the Iranian regime, the Iranian government, is a criminal regime. And like Hamas, they are much worse for their own people than even for Israel. When, whenever we speak about Hamas, we have to remember that Hamas is, is a criminal enterprise of corrupt officials who run a kleptocracy, who are many of whom are actual billionaires themselves, Hamas billionaires, 
and they live comfortable lives in in countries like Qatar and Doha, like Ismail Hania. Um, of course, Yasser Arafat died a billionaire. So two billion dollars. That's not. Yeah, that's a two billion dollars when he died. And uh, unfortunately, Mahmoud Abbas is not as successful <laughs> at theft because he's only worth hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> so we wish him well to increase mm -hmm. his fortune. But of course, this all comes at the expense of, of the Palestinian people. So when you tell me that Iran would not accept Israeli help f for the earthquakes, and I witnessed, I was an eyewitness to Israeli expertise in Haiti. I was in Haiti four days after the earthquake. Was it 2012? It was, uh, if that was the correct year. It was the worst catastrophe I'd ever seen. It sh I took my, my daughter, Mushki, I think she was 16 at the time, 18 at the time. I remember Mushki's faith in God was shaken by those. It was, it was earlier than 2000, it was like 2010. Anyway, I remember that Mushki's faith in God was shaken. She was telling me, Tati, how could God allow this? The stench of death, 250,000 people dead. The stench of death was just rampant throughout Port-au-Prince. And, and there were, there was the Israeli military and, and just saving lives. So Israel does have expertise. I saw it with my own eyes. But of course Iran's not going to um, leverage Israeli expertise because they couldn't care less about their citizens. They kill their citizens. They shoot their citizens. This is a ruling elite who are extremely wealthy, extremely corrupt, extremely bloody. And they're bloodier to the Iranian people than they are even to the Israelis, of course. Can you tell us a little more about the, the consequences of people like Khajamin and Husseini and where it's going to take us today? Leadership is everything. If you if you hear leaders who are conciliatory, let's well let's compare two extremes. Take um, Hajar bin Al Husseini and his impact on the Palestinian people, versus the greatest American of the 20th century, Martin Luther King, and his impact on African Americans and in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King could have been a very angry man. America's treatment of its African African-American citizens was deplorable. I mean, you're talking about a country that brought these people here in cha chains, literally. Many of them died on the way. Untold numbers died on the way. Um, and then they were sold on the block like cattle, and they were beaten with whips. And then when that ended, when 700,000 Americans died in the Civil War to end slavery, they were then enslaved by a different means that we call Jim Crow and segregation. Martin Luther King had every right to be extremely angry and militant about all that. Instead, he preached a gospel of peace and reconciliation, largely based, by the way, on the, on the writings of the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah. And he brought healing to the country, and he paid with, that f with his life. And he orphaned five young children. But look at how effective he was. By the time he gave his life at the age of 39, and his entire career was only 14 years. His first speech on civil rights is when he's 25 years old, Dexter uh, Church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and he's murdered in Memphis, Tennessee on April, of, on April 4th, 1968. But look at how successful he was, because when you really love the people, when you really, he was a great leader of his people, then you teach them how to solve problems, how to be effective, how to be unified, how to ultimately battle injustice, not through hatred, but through, um, through determination. Now, now look at Hajj al-Min al-Husseini. He believed that he had a cause. What was his cause? He didn't want Jewish immigration to the Holy Land. 
He refused to look at thousands of years of Jewish connection to the land. He refused to look at the fact that the Jews were forcibly evicted from the land by the Romans 2,000 years before. He overlooked the fact that the Jews were always there, had a remnant the entire time, even as they were brutalized for wanting to be there. And, and most of all, he overlooked that, that Jews were making the lives of Palestinians so much better in, in mandatory so Palestine. Facets, right. they, were, they were draining the swamps. They were increasing ag- the agricultural yield, you know, a hundredfold. Medical situation. Uh, they were, yeah, and all the medicine and commerce and, 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 and hotels and beautiful buildings and, and architecture. This was all benefiting the Palestinians. The Jews wanted to live side by side with the Palestinians. But he hated the Jews so much, even to the detriment of his own people. So he radicalized his people. And we suffer from that till this very day. Because so many Arab leaders continue to believe that the way you gain um, the confidence of the Palestinian people, the way you gain uh, stature in Palestinian circles, is not through conciliation and peace and doing things that will benefit your nation, but it's rather by expressing hatred for the Jews. And Hamas, of course, is the ultimate example. Because I used to visit Gush Katif before the Israeli withdrawal under Ariel Sharon in 2005. And Gush Katif was beautiful. I saw hydroponics. I saw, uh, I saw cabbage, and 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 cucumbers and tomatoes growing out of thin air from the from the the sand, the beautiful sands of the Gaza seashore. Look at Gaza today. It's a total hellhole. Hamas received more international aid per capita than even the Europeans received with a Marshall Plan. Probably triple what Europe received with the Marshall Plan. Look what Europe did with the Marshall Plan. Look at the thriving economies of the, of the European Union, of France, and England, and, and Belgium. And, and Germany. And Germany, of course, versus Gaza. Gaza is a total hellhole because all of that money, of course... Was invested in rockets. Is ro- rockets and, and into concrete tunnels. to build tunnels, you know, etc. Because they hate the Jews far more. As Golda Meir famously said, if only the Arabs loved their children as much as they hate the Jews, or, or more so, then there would be peace in the Middle East. So, Hazrat Amin uh, his his leadership lives in infamy till today. And what about, why don't we see, uh, or would you predict that we would see a moderate Arab who could learn the lesson of Martin Luther King, learn the lesson of someone who could actually be a moderate and would gain much more than just preaching hatred? Well, first of all, I want to be very careful. In making the comparison of Martin Luther King, I'm focusing specifically, I'm such an admirer of Martin Luther King. I, you know, I've tried to read as many biographies about his life as possible. I've taken my kids in an RV to the, great, to the places where some of his great oratory was given, the most famous of which, of course, was uh, Washington in August 1963 when he gave the Eye of Dream speech. That was a speech he had actually given before, but, that, but, he, but he gave it that day like never before. Mm-hmm. Um, but his speech at Mason Temple on April 3rd, 1968, the night before he dies, um, which was almost a recounting of Moses and the Israelites going through Egypt, the, the, the mountaintop speech where he said that, you know, like Moses, that God had taken him over the mountain, he would not get into the promised land like Moses. He, he predicted his own death less than 24 hours later. But uh, I want to be careful with the comparison of Martin Luther King. I raised Martin Luther King because of my incredible admiration for him. But where the comparison stops is that Martin Luther King was battling a true and cruel injustice treatment of African-American men, women, and children in the United States was horrible. That was never the case with Israel. Israel's treatment of its Arab citizens is nothing short of exemplary. Israel is the place where 
It's two million Arab Muslim citizens are the freest of any country in the Middle East. And you know, we saw something very interesting. We saw that in 1993, when Israel signed the Oslo Peace Accords, unfortunately they weren't peace, but the Oslo Accords with the Yasser Arafat, they gave the Palestinians who were living under Israeli uh, control the opportunity to go and move and live under Yasser Arafat's control. And you know how many moved? Only a few thousand, not hundreds of thousands. They chose to stay in Israel. They didn't want to live under Yasser Arafat because they know every Arab who lives as a full citizen of, these, of, of Israel, or even Palestinians who live in, in, in military-controlled areas, they themselves know that in Israel they have freedom of press, freedom of worship, freedom to congregate. Yes, there are benefits. Yeah, yes, in fact, if, if anything, there's discrimination against the Jewish population in Israel because the Jewish population is forced to serve in the military. Um, they are conscripted. Um, Arabs are not conscripted in Israel. Now, for anyone who denies that that's a serious issue, look what conscription did to the United States in the 1960s under Lyndon Johnson and in the early 70s. Until the United States got rid of uh, the draft, I think under uh, President Nixon, America was torn asunder by the military draft. And yet in Israel, every Jewish kid, men and women, are drafted, with the sole exception of some who go to yeshiva who are given a military exemption, but they're all drafted. But no Arabs are drafted. So if anything, it's reverse discrimination. It's the Jewish boys and Jewish girls who are sent on the front lines and who die in these wars. But the point is, Israel's Arab neighbors have no freedoms. Um, even benevolent autocrats like, let's say, King Abdullah of Jordan, who's nowhere near as bad as some of the other uh, Arab potentates, just try to criticize him in <laughs> Amman. He's not going to kill you the way Hamas will, because he's not that kind of, he's not a, I don't see him as a murderer, he's not. Um, he's not going to torture you, because I think he's, he's a benevolent dictator. And I shouldn't call him a dictator, because he does have some parliamentary restraints, but but he's certainly not going to leave you alone. You will probably end up in jail very quickly. Under Mahmoud Abbas, of course you're going to end up in jail. And Hamas, under Hamas, you'll be tortured and murdered, brutally killed. So I, I want to be careful in making any comparisons with Martin Luther King, and, um, who was protesting a, a tr the true ra right, racism I, I, and an injustice, correction. which does not co occur it's a in very Israel. Good, very important point. I'm afraid our time has lapsed. So uh, you gave me enough insights now to give me, last me for a whole year. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hanoch. Uh, I'm honored to be on. God bless you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.